That was the great protest song of the civil rights movement in, in the USA in the 1960s. I had the privilege some years ago of taking a class with a man who was a personal friend of Martin Luther King. Uh, his name was Mike Haynes. He'd pastored with him in Boston, and uh, he used to sing that song, and it was pretty special. It was a song that referenced the need for deliverance from a terrible racist injustice, an oppressive system, and the call for freedom, liberty, justice. And the first chapter of Exodus highlighted just those kinds of conditions and even worse. And those in the civil rights movement would often reach out and, and talk about the Exodus and the need for, to be delivered and taken through. We read last week about the unyielding slavery that the Hebrews were subjected to. Today we're going to turn to chapter 2 to discover what God is going to do about it. Now we're not just teaching a course on ancient history here at King's Church. God's Word is telling us about history, real things that happened in the past, but it is living and active for us right now. These things were written down for us. So we always need to ask, so what? What does it mean for me on Monday morning? That's where we're going today. How will we overcome. Three points today. Firstly, daring faith. We'll overcome by daring faith. Secondly, the hidden hand, the hidden hand of God. And thirdly, an unlikely savior. We'll overcome through an unlikely savior. Firstly, daring faith. Have a, if you've closed your Bible, please open it again to Exodus chapter 1. And just for, by way of recap, the Pharaoh arises, he doesn't know about the history of these people, and he's worried about their possible influence. So they put, verse 11 puts slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they build store cities. But the more they were oppressed, verse 12, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians became to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in their fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Just like many minority ethnic groups down through the years of history, as recently as North America and Australia, or minority ethnic groups being treated appallingly. Or in the history of the 20th century, those groups, those dictators that came to power and used their power in a totalitarian, crushing way, Pharaoh will do that. This is a man, an imperial king, who will do anything in his love of power. Raw power. He will do anything. There's no checks and balances on this guy. He eventually makes a, a decree of infanticide. He tells an entire majority people group, kill the baby boys of the Hebrews. If the Hebrew women give birth, kill the babies. Throw them in the Nile to drown. It's hideous. And yet here we find in chapter 2, verse 1, some people trust God in spite of that. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. A man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son. Now, normally you'd be rejoicing over the birth of a son, wouldn't you? But this is, as soon as he's born, they're thinking someone's going to come and kill him. So what are they going to do? The answer is they hold on to hope in spite of it. Now, these parents have two children already, we later learn, Miriam and Aaron. But when this third one is born, they defy the will of the king. Why? 
Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, verse 23, tells us it was because of faith. It was because of faith. Here's the verse. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So faith could even make you stand up against the king. This faith is an active trust in God. It strengthened them. And what we find in Exodus 1 and 2 is that this, who you, people would think of as the weakest members of the community actually proved to be the strongest. I'm talking about the women. In those cultures, women were considered to be weaker. And yet it is women who are the heroines, the heroes of chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, it's, un, it's the women, the midwives, who, who oppose the, 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 the rule of the Pharaoh and save the children. And in chapter 2, it's particularly the mum and sister act that saves Moses' life. These are the heroes of the story in the face of violent, strong men. How did these women become so strong? The answer is by faith. They trusted that God would come through on his ancient promises, and they didn't know how, and they didn't know when, but they just had enough to go on. Now, Christian brothers and sisters here, you know, you and I have a lot more to go on than they do, don't we? We have the whole Bible. We have 2,000 years of Christian history, church history. We have Jesus Christ himself of whom we've sung this morning. We have a lot to go on. We have a lot to put our faith and trust in and so to be inspired and strong to face the circumstances of life with daring faith. Notice that this faith is not passive. It is active. It does something. They act too. They come up with a cunning plan. Look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So they hide the baby until he just gets too big and noisy to keep secret. You know, he's squawking away in the way that newborns do. And, you know, there's, it's getting to the point where someone's going to hear. So they come up with this plan. We're going to hide him in the river. That's kind of an ironic location, isn't it? That's supposed to be the place that he would be drowned. They're using it as the place to save him. So they make this wicker box, a chest, out of papyrus reeds, and they cork it to make it waterproof. And apparently, these reeds are quite good for that sort of thing. They're fairly uh, buoyant and waterproof. And they hide him in the waters, and they station his older sister, Miriam. She's kind of the lookout, and she's looking, watching to see what will happen. And so there's this baby out somewhere in the river, in the reeds. Now, that's daring faith, isn't it, to do that? They're risking a lot. That's the first thing we need is this kind of faith in what God has promised. But secondly, this faith goes hand in hand with God's providential working in the world. God's hidden hand, the hand of God. Second point. Now, older members here will remember that the phrase hand of God has a painful history for England football fans. The World Cup quarterfinals of 1986 for younger people was a crucial game, England playing Argentina, who were and are very good at football. Diego Maradona, possibly the world's best player and an Argentine, 
got near to the goal as a ball came in. And he was man-to-man with the England goalkeeper, Peter Shilton, who was about eight inches taller. Shilton's huge, Maradona's small. But somehow, Maradona managed to raise his hand a bit and just tip the ball into the net. Because the referees didn't have a clear view of the play, and there was no uh, video reference in those days, it gave Argentina a crucial 1-0 lead, and they went on to win. Maradona famously said, A little with the head of Maradona, a little with the hand of God. And he said that it was symbolic revenge for the Falklands War. (laughs) Many years later, in his autobiography, he confessed, What hand of God? It was the hand of Diego. (laughs) Now, what is the point of that story? You've got to be careful reading the hand of God in history. People like to claim that God did all sorts of things. But the Bible reveals to us that God is active in hidden ways often in the course of history, and especially with his chosen people, Israel. Notice in verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to see what will happen. The family has done all they can, but frankly, it's a bit desperate, isn't it? I mean, this plan has no future. How long is he going to live out there in the basket? Teenage years are going to be a bit awkward. You know, there's not a long-term future for this. Then in verse 5, some people come along. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe with her attendants walking along the riverbank. So this, at this moment, everything seems to hang by a thread. But what are the chances of it happening at this exact spot that it would be Pharaoh's daughter What are the chances, the odds of such a thing? And she sees the basket. And actually, to be honest, this could be the end of the story, couldn't it? This could be the end of the story. What other outcome would you expect than that she would be obedient to her dad, the all-powerful king? But something amazing happens. In verse 6, the baby is weeping. She opens the basket and saw the baby, and he was crying. The only time in the Bible that this word for weeping is used of an infant And her heart softens. She's filled with compassion. She felt sorry for him, even though she knows exactly what's going on. She says, this is one of the Hebrew babies. She knows why he's there and why he's been hidden. But then the sister comes in and does something absolutely stunning. Verse 7, Miriam, the sister, comes up because she's been watching. And she asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, that is genius. Yes, you you can do that. Go and get me a wet nurse. So she goes and gets his own mum. And then in verse 9, in a wonderful moment, Pharaoh's daughter ends up paying Moses' mum for childcare. And so Moses is breastfed by his own mother until he is weaned. And that may have been the age of three or thereabouts. Scholars think it may have been time enough for him to acquire Hebrew as his first language. Certainly his formative years were spent in a Hebrew household, which is crucial later on. He's one of them. But he also gets brought up somewhere else. He's also from somewhere very grand. Because in verse 10, the language suggests adoption. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, all of this is is kind of so 
unlikely and unexpected that it suggests the hand of God at work. What looked like desperation, misery, defeat, is actually setting the stage for the most glorious rescue because Moses is not just an ordinary baby. He is actually the saviour who will lead God's people out of slavery. That's how important he is. He's a saviour. But he is an unlikely one. My third point. First point was, uh, I've forgotten what it was. Daring faith, then the hand of God, now an unlikely saviour. Now is it justified for me to call Moses a saviour? Notice here that it, he isn't just portrayed as uh, any old baby. He is pictured. The language suggests there's something going on here that's a new creation. Notice the language of seeing that something is good. Verse 2, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, that, or a goodly child, the same language is used there of God at creation, where God creates things and he sees that they are good. God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. He saw that they were good. God made the plants. He made the animals. And again and again, Genesis chapter 1 says... God saw that it was good. And when he'd finished all of creation and humankind, he said, it says he saw that it was very good. So there is creation language here deliberately used by the same author for the birth of Moses. She saw that he was good. And then in verse 3, we have another hint that links to the previous book. She, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him. But look at the footnote in the church Bible. The Hebrew word can also mean ark. In fact, the only time that this word is used in the rest of the Old Testament, the only time is about the ark that saved Noah and his family. Obviously, it was a lot bigger than that wicker ark that was in the Nile, but the imagery is the same. The imagery of apparent disaster, it looks like the story's over, the end of the world as we know it, the end of humanity. But God is bringing about a surprising, unlikely rescue through a group who were put into an ark that floated on the waters and came through the other side. When the waters came down, they came out on dry land. What will happen to Moses, this baby that's been put in a little ark on the Nile? Apparently the place of death, but he will be drawn out and given life and lead his people. And many, many years later, Moses will lead the people out of Egypt and they will come once again to the, to the, the shores of, of, a, of water, the sea, the Red Sea. And it will look once again like it's all over. But God once again will step in. The waters will part in a miracle and they will walk through a double miracle on dry land and come out the other side as God's new people. See, all of this is tied together. It's showing us that God is in the business of creating a new creation. He will not leave his world to the mess we've made of it. God loves his world and he will redeem it through his people who are a new creation. And Christian friend here, God is still doing this today in your life. You are a new creation through Jesus. Hence, we baptize people who come out of the waters and get dried off. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, behold, the old is gone, the new has come. And this new creation starts in the most inauspicious, weak, 
looking way. Moses, he, we're going to find out next week, he has a passion for justice, but he makes a mess of it and he ends up homeless. In order to lead his people, Moses has to lose all his influence, forsake the throne, go out of the palace, become a nobody in the desert before he can lead the people out of the slavery through the desert. But that's what he does. See, God's plans always turn apparent disaster on its head so that he can save his people. Daring faith, the hidden hand of God, and an unlikely savior. But as I said at the beginning, what does this have to do with you and me on Monday morning? We might say, very interesting, but so what? Let me ask you one question. I want to say it quite carefully. Are you a slave? Are you a slave? And you think, well, I could do with a pay rise, but I'm not a slave. Hold on a minute. Just think about the conditions of slavery that Exodus describes. Chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Worked ruthlessly, lives bitter, harsh labor. End of chapter 2, verse 23. They groaned in their slavery and cried out. They groaned and cried for help. I want to propose to you today that many more of us are slaves than we realize because we have slave masters that are running our life. Anything that makes your life bitter, anything that makes you groan, anything that makes you cry out or treats you ruthlessly may well be a slave master. May I ask, do you ever have panic attacks? Or you find yourself deeply controlled by non-clinical anxiety? It works you ruthlessly. Do you ever self-harm? Or you're tempted to self-harm? If you can't bear to look yourself in the mirror, if you hate how you look, if you ever fail, and the feeling of failure is so crushing that you hate yourself and you hate your life. If you're addicted to something that has a grip on you and takes your life away, pornography, alcohol, some kind of substance. If you always work much, much harder than you need to, if you always need to be the best, if you have to be the top of the class, A star, if you just dread being mediocre, average, second rate. If your children dominate your life and their success and their happiness rules you and takes away your joy. If you're obsessively self-protective and you just can't let other people in in case they hurt you like you've been hurt in the past. If your happiness is completely controlled by the approval and opinion of other people, you're so worried, what do they think of me? It hurts you so much when they don't look, think well of you. Do you know, we are enslaved by far more things than we realize or imagine. Anything that works you ruthlessly, anything that makes your life bitter, is a form of slavery. We just don't realize it. A lot more people are enslaved than they think because most slavery is in the mind. Most slavery is slavery of the spirit. We're slaves to our own significance. We're slaves to our own comfort. 
We're slaves to our own feeling of security. Why are we like this? Because we were made to serve. We were built to serve. Nobody's truly free in the sense of being completely detached. Everybody serves something. So you have to ask, is the thing that I serve giving me life or taking life away? Is this thing that seems to control me and make my life miserable, am I serving it and is it giving me life or is it taking it away? The story of the book of Exodus is the story of a change of Lord. They go from Pharaoh to the Lord. It's a story of a change in servitude. They go from being slaves of Pharaoh to servants of the Lord. They're set free in the sense of being given a new Lord and Master. That's what we need. They come to know the Lord, the Lord God, in whose service is perfect freedom. Now this applies whether this is the first time you've ever been in the church today or whether you've been here for 50 years. We're all in the same boat, friends. Our hearts tend to go back to those things we can see, taste, touch, feel, those things, those habits of old, those things that were formed in us in early childhood. We tend to follow those things and they work us hard and they make us miserable. And they take our lives away. And God wants better for you than that. Whom to know, whom to serve is perfect freedom. Some Christians follow Jesus and then in part of their life, they go back to Egypt. They go back to slavery. They may go back because they think it offers more immediate pleasure, but it never works in the long run. The solution for us, dear friends, is to step out in daring faith and refuse those things and say no. Say no to ungodliness. Say no to the old way of life. No, I'm going to trust you, Lord, and follow what you say. I'm going to cling to the obedience of faith. We're going to trace the hidden hand of God in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters here and in the lives of our church and our community and know that he is working his purposes out as year turns to year. And then we're going to walk with the unlikely Savior who God has sent. The events of Moses' childhood foreshadow someone else. They foreshadow the experience of one far greater than Moses. The life of the infant Jesus was threatened by the edict of a power-crazed king, Herod. He ordered the slaughter of all the male babies under the age of two years. And by the faith and obedience of Mary and Joseph, they were able to save the child, taking refuge in the very country of Egypt where Moses was preserved. French scholar of the 15th century, Jacques de Tapple, said, It is wonderful how similar the first experiences of the newborn Moses were to the infancy of Christ. A greater Moses who has come for us. Because it wasn't just his childhood that spoke of his being a savior. The one who had a passion for justice but ended up rejected by men. The one who in order to lead his people had to lose his influence and his throne. Jesus left the throne room of heaven and came down to be born in a stable and laid in a manger. The one who, although he was the king of the universe, became a nobody out on the cross so he could lead his people through to the new creation. 
With Moses, God is introducing a new creation, and God is still doing this today. Will you follow him? Let's pray. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation, behold, the old has gone, the new has come. Father, we just praise and thank you today for this story with its different elements of real human lives and story of, of mess and worry and anxiety and trying in desperate faith to rescue a son. The story of your hand at work behind the events, behind even the footsteps of a woman going down to bathe, just happening to be there at the right spot at the right time. And the knowledge that in spite of everything, you are bringing about a salvation that is far greater than anything we could ask and imagine. Make this live in our minds this week, we pray. Amen.